Revelation chapter 2, we are, we're focused on these two chapters with, we did one study as an introduction in chapter 1, and and now we've done two studies in the very beginning portion of chapter 2. Uh, this will be our, our second church and uh, fourth study total in this short series we're doing on the seven letters that the Lord Jesus instructed the Apostle John to write down and send to these seven selected churches in what we now call modern-day Turkey and was then known as Asia Minor. Uh, John, remember, was was in prison on a prison island called Patmos just off the coast of the mainland, and there was a, a, a postal ship a Roman postal ship that would carry letters from the island to the mainland, and then the um, the postal carrier would work his way through these exact same seven cities that were uh, in closest proximity to the island of Patmos, if, uh, the city of the Ephesians being the first of those. We've taken a couple of studies to focus on the letter to the Ephesians in the first seven verses of chapter 2. And this brings us now to the next of those churches, this city Smyrna that uh, we're about to study was, um, it was due north of Ephesus, right along the coastline, just like Ephesus was. And uh, it was, of course, the second in this this circular postal route uh, that I've referred to. Um, in this particular letter, we're going we're gonna to focus just on one primary element. With Ephesus, we looked at two things. One that was that was uh, somewhat uh, encouraging and uh, somewhat pleasing to the Lord, and another element in the Ephesian letter that was that was displeasing to him, and and he spoke to the church in a critical way. With the uh, the church in Smyrna, what we're going to find is the Lord really only has one thing to say to them, one essential thing, and it's it's unusual among the seven letters in that out of the seven churches and the seven letters written to them. This is the shortest of the letters, but it is, I, I would say in, in one sense, it's the most significant of the letters because what the Lord has to say to this church is only encouraging. He has not a single critical thing to say to the church in Smyrna. I had mentioned last study, uh, wouldn't it be a, a blessing if we knew that the Lord was coming to evaluate us as a church like he was evaluating these seven churches. And what a blessing it would be if the Lord only had one critical thing to say about us like he did with the Ephesians. Uh, But what an even greater blessing it would be if you were sitting in a spiritual circumstance as a congregation of God's people, when the Lord himself had come to visit the church, he was observing everything that was going on in the church and had literally nothing critical to say to them only encouraging. What an awesome thing that would be. The question in our study today is going to be, but would we change places with them if we were given the opportunity? Because while the Lord had nothing critical to say to them, their circumstances were not exactly favorable. Uh, Our circumstances as a church are much more favorable than their circumstances were. So it's going to be kind of a a spiritual equation for us to figure out today. And that um, would we be willing 
to exchange circumstances. Not that we can, not that we can intentionally do this, but I just want you to conceptualize it this way. Would you be willing to change circumstances with the Smyrna church if it meant you were to receive the same kind of glowing praise and commendation and encouragement from the Lord who evaluates the churches? Or would we be tempted to hold on to our circumstance even at the cost of missing out on the Lord's praise and commendation? So let me read the uh, letter and we'll dig into the specifics uh, as short as it is. Starting in verse 8, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. All right, so let me give you some background details of the city of Smyrna as it related to the church that was planted there. We don't know uh, with certainty, absolute certainty, exactly how the church got started in Smyrna. There was only, at this moment in history, much different than our cultural circumstance, only one church in the city of Smyrna. So if you lived in Smyrna and you identified as a Christ follower, this was your church, whether you liked it or not. You know, we have how many churches just in the San Fernando Valley? How many? Take a guess. Yeah, 500 is a pretty good guess. Years ago, we were part of a a crusade uh, evangelism outreach, and as part of our church was was part of the the behind-the-scenes effort to put this crusade on, and as part of the uh, follow-up to the crusade, our church was assigned the responsibility to contact every church in the San Fernando Valley. So that meant I had to, it was, and it fell on me, so it was my job to identify every church in the San Fernando Valley. And this is, I'm talking about 30 years ago, probably, that this happened. Back then, there may be more now, there may be less, I don't know. I haven't kept track of the exact number. But back then, there were 700 churches in the San Fernando Valley, just within driving distance. And we're not even including Simi, where some of you drive from. Um, can you imagine the difference? Smyrna, huge city, not quite as big as the San Fernando Valley, but almost as big in terms of population. And only one church was there. It was a true church, as I've already said, pleasing in the eyes of the Lord, but that's your only choice. Like it or lump it. If you're going to be a believer, you're going to be part of church life, you're going to be part of that church. Now, As I said, it was due north of Ephesus, right along the coastline. This city 
was one of the largest of the seven. Uh, it, would, it would rival Ephesus in terms of just population number. They were the two biggest of these seven churches, of these seven cities. But this city was known far and wide as the glory of Asia. That means that there was just something significant about this city. It was, it was a shining example among all of the cities of this region of the world. Uh, the, the, probably the most famous thing about the city in terms of its economic base was it was famous for its groves of myrrh trees. Of course, we're somewhat familiar with myrrh from other portions of God's word and the significance symbolically that myrrh even played in the personal story of the Lord Jesus. You remember how the, uh, the wise men, when they first visited the, the young child um, in his earliest years, uh, brought three gifts. One of them was they brought a gift of myrrh. Um, we know that he was offered on the cross a drink of wine mixed with myrrh, which was kind of a, a painkiller kind of concoction that he turned down. The idea being that myrrh was a, a highly valued substance, and it was uh, there was a, a, a big economy that that just kind of centered around myrrh trade, and this was uh, primarily from the city of Smyrna. Uh, the, the religious life in the city before the gospel came, before the church was established, and of course, even after the church was established, there were three, there were many, many temples dedicated to various Greek and Roman gods, but there were three temples that rose above the others in significance. The first was a temple to a Roman Caesar who had already lived and died by the time this letter was written, but it was a, a temple dedicated to him, which meant it was it was the center of what was called then emperor worship, which was just beginning to get rolling in the Roman Empire, the, the, the deification of the Roman emperors. So this was a temple dedicated to Tiberius Caesar, who was a, a, an exceptionally wicked man, but who had accomplished great things in terms of the expansion of the Roman Empire. Uh, of course, uh, Zeus uh, the the father or the chief among the Greek gods. There was a great temple dedicated to Zeus. And then um, there was also a temple dedicated to Sibeli, who was known as uh, a fertility goddess. And she was called the mother of all of the gods. So uh, these were, this was kind of the religious um, climate of the, the society and the culture there in the city of Smyrna. It also was known among these seven cities as having the largest Jewish population of any city in, in the uh, area of Asia Minor. And the Jewish population there was particularly wealthy. Uh, they, had, they had grown in great wealth because they had a big part in the myrrh trade that I've already described. Um, not at this moment that the letter was written, but soon after this letter, um, one of the most famous members of the church in Smyrna was a man by the name of Polycarp. Uh, one or two of you may have heard about him before. He is uh, considered to be one of the great church fathers of the earliest generations of Christian history. He was a personal disciple of John the Apostle who wrote the book of Revelation, meaning he was led to the Lord by John and mentored by John, kind of kind of discipled by John, 
and then eventually in the year 155 AD, Polycarp uh, did die as a martyr, a Christian martyr, uh, because of persecution there in the city of Smyrna. I'm going to read a little bit more about Polycarp a little bit deeper into our study today. Um, what's interesting, as I mentioned, this is this is the only one of the seven letters that is. Um, does not contain a single line or phrase of criticism from the Lord. And it may not be connected, but it is just interesting to me. Out of the seven cities that these churches were established in, this is the only city that's still in his existence today. Now, you can go to that part of the world, you can go to Turkey, and you can, you can do an archaeological kind of study, and you can go to the, to the uh, site where the city of Ephesus was. You can go to the site where the city of Pergamum was, and Thyatira, and the other letters, uh, the other cities uh, that were the target of these letters. But Smyrna is the only city that's still standing today, still functioning today. I, I just think it's an interesting correlation. The only one that had a church with no critical element in it that was only pleasing in the eyes of the Lord and and the idea to me the possibility that the uh, influence of that church being so pleasing in the eyes of the Lord and then that city that surrounded that church is the only one that is still standing today. Now, for each one of these letters, what we're focused on is certain elements in each letter that are similar to all of the seven churches. And the first element for each one is how the Lord chooses to introduce himself. Uh, these churches all know the Lord. These are, these are churches filled with born-again people. Uh, they know the gospel. They know who Jesus is. And yet, in each case, the Lord chooses to reintroduce himself to the church. The idea is he is focusing the church's attention on certain aspects or certain attributes of who he is in order to strengthen their perspective and their faith toward him in the context of what they were experiencing and what they were going through. So the Lord introduces himself two ways here in uh, the letter to the Smyrnans, and these are both in verse 8. He introduces himself this way, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Now, what I want you to notice is, uh, just for a moment, turn back to chapter 1. And we studied this in our first study in this series. And this is the vision that the Lord gave to the apostle John, in which he appeared to John in the fullness of his resurrected and ascended heavenly glory. And the descriptions of how the Lord reveals himself to John are significant for us because what the Lord does in each one of these seven letters is he takes one or two of the elements from this vision and then he emphasizes that individually to each one of the seven churches. Uh, let's look at verse 12 of chapter 1. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning, I, said, I saw seven golden lampstands. And we learn later that the seven lampstands are symbols for the seven churches. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, this is obviously the Lord himself, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. 
and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In in his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in its full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Now, it's, it's those words that the Lord Jesus spoke to John in that vision that he now repeats intentionally and purposefully for the Smyrna church. And there's a reason why this is the way he introduces himself to them. Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Why would he choose this introduction and target the Smyrna church with this specific focus of who he is? Well, the idea of him being the first and last is uh, it's, it's taken from a prophecy that the prophet Isaiah gave to the children of Israel all the way back in Isaiah chapter 44. I won't turn back and read it, but it's a direct quote from Isaiah 44. And in the context of Isaiah's prophecy, it's a declaration of the Lord that he is in charge. In spite of what they see going on around them, in spite of what they're experiencing in their immediately surrounding circumstances, the Lord wants his people to know, I am the first, I am the last, I'm in charge of it all. It's, it's like saying, I am the A of the alphabet and I am the Z of the alphabet and everything in between is included. I am in charge of all of life. And then the second emphasis, of course, is he tells John and then the Smyrnans uh, in the letter to them that he is the living one who died and is alive again. Let's go back to the Smyrnan letter and read it as he says it. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Why would he want to emphasize to the Smyrnans, I died, this is who you follow, this is who you worship. I died, but I came back to life. The idea is the Smyrnans are in a specialized set of circumstances that we call tribulation and the specific tribulation that they're enduring or experiencing is persecution simply because they're followers of Christ. We're going to talk in a moment about the nature of their specific persecution, how it was affecting the practicality of the way they lived their lives. But what the Lord wanted them to understand was he himself was a persecuted one. And what was the extent of his persecution? He didn't just endure insults, though he did. He didn't just endure some mistreatment, though he did. He endured the ultimate level of persecution, which was being killed for the truth of who he was and what he had come to accomplish. But in spite of being killed by his persecutors, it wasn't the end of his story. His story didn't end with a tragic death on the cross. His story ended with a glorious, triumphant, vindicating resurrection from the dead. And so the greatest encouragement Jesus could possibly give this persecuted church is that I've gone down the path that you're on before you were ever on the path. And it doesn't end tragically. It ends gloriously. 
It may not end gloriously in your present experience, but if you remain faithful and stay on this pathway, it will end gloriously and far more gloriously than you can even imagine at this present moment. So this is how the Lord introduces himself. Then he has words of commendation or encouragement for the church. And as I mentioned, while he does encourage many of the churches in these seven letters, uh, he has only commendation for them. And this is what he says to them. Verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Uh, We emphasize this in the Ephesians letter. Uh, You see the same exact phrase at the beginning of uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 2. It's only a few verses above. Just glance back up to verse 2. Same exact phrase. It's two little words, I know. But there's a significance in that. Um, Look look to the next letter, just as an example. Look in verse, still in chapter 2, look at verse 13. As he's speaking to the church in Pergamum. I know where you dwell. So in, in the first three letters, he says the same thing to all three churches. I know. And in regards to you, I know. And in regards to you, I know. What does that tell us about the Lord's interaction and relationship with us as a church? He knows. What does he know? He knows everything about where we live, what culture we live in, what society surrounds us, what pressures we deal with. He knows exactly the condition of the church. He knows the hearts of us corporately and he knows our hearts individually. He's not, he's not confused about any of it. He's not in the dark about any of it. And there is, if we understand it rightly, there is just a great comfort that comes with the awareness that the Lord is paying close attention to what's going on with us. Now, I say there's a, there's a wonderful encouragement with that. There's also a, there's a fearful element of that if you're not in the same spiritual condition that the Smyrnans were in. What's the fearful uh, prospect of the Lord knowing exactly what's going on with the church? Well, if, if there are displeasing things that are happening with him, he fully knows that as well. And he will, he's not like a, he's not the type of parent that just lets things slide. You know, yeah, yeah, I, I, I know, I see that, but you know, it's, it's just not worth me paying attention to her. It's not worth me addressing. Um, I'm just going to let that stuff slide. He lets nothing slide. He gives room, but he lets nothing slide. So in this circumstance for the Smyrnans, though, when he says to them, with no hint of criticism connected to it, I know what you're going through. I think they find and should find great encouragement from that. So he says, I know your tribulation. The word tribulation just means to be put under intense pressure. Like uh, the best analogy I could give is, how many of you have ever cooked something in a, in a pressure cooker? Anybody? Pressure cooker? Is everyone at least familiar with what a pressure cooker is? Okay, so I want you to think about you're in the pressure cooker as opposed to standing there monitoring the pressure cooker. In this analogy, who's standing there monitoring the pressure cooker? The Lord. But we're in the pot under the intense pressure. And what is, the, what is, what is happening in a pressure cooker? 
to the food that you place in it. What's happening in there? It's, there's heat, there's steam, and there's pressure. All three things are working together in order to break down the food. You know, it goes in hard and it comes out ready to eat. You know, you can, you can take a you know, big old hunk of tough meat and if you cook it in the pressure cooker long enough, it's going to come out and it's going to, like we say, fall off the bone. So the idea is the pressure is affecting what's being put under that degree and kind of pressure. So the Lord says to them, I know your tribulation. He's not saying, I know the theoretical concept of what some churches might someday experience in terms of tribulation. He's saying, I know your tribulation, meaning at the moment he's writing this letter to them, they're under it. They're experiencing it. They are being broken down at a certain level by it. And I am saying he's the one monitoring the pot. He's ordained the pressure for them, but he doesn't intend the pressure to destroy them. He intends the pressure to ultimately benefit them. But let's not diminish the reality that it's real, strong pressure. Now, what's the specific nature of the pressure they were experiencing? Because there are different levels of this kind of spiritual pressure. It's what we call persecution in this case. It's not just a a circumstance like it wasn't like a hurricane came through the city and devastated the city and therefore they're under pressure because of the difficult circumstances. But everybody in the city is experiencing that, not just the Christians. This is a pressure that's targeting the believers and only the believers. It's not the whole city of Smyrna that's under this pressure, just the church. So the, the church is experiencing persecution, but there's a a wide range of what persecution can mean. Persecution can be as mild or as light as just being the target of insults, not being favorable in the eyes of the surrounding community. Oh, there's that group of, you know them, those people over there that meet in that building or meet at that house and they call themselves Christ followers and just the the public perception that's a negative public perception that is a very mild form of persecution but it's real persecution then persecution can get a little stronger there are varying degrees what's the ultimate degree as I've already identified death actually surrounding societies I'm talking about surrounding churches choosing to kill those that are only being targeted because of their faithfulness to the Lord Jesus and to the gospel. And while we have not experienced that in our church life, there are circumstances like that that continue to happen even in this world today. There are churches that are experiencing the ultimate Form or expression of persecution. The Smyrnans were not under that level of intense persecution yet. Polycarp, who later became the pastor of the church, would experience the ultimate expression of persecution. Let me read his brief story of his martyrdom. On February 23rd, the year 155, Polycarp was killed by, or 
or for his refusal to deny the name of Jesus. He had been the pastor of Smyrna for many years, the church in Smyrna, and as an elderly saint, he was brought before a proconsul of the Roman Empire who gave him the choice to proclaim Caesar is Lord and curse the name of Jesus. And if he would do those two things, he would live and be released from captivity. Or he could choose to hold to his confession that rather than Caesar is Lord, his declaration was Jesus is Lord. And if he held firm to that declaration, he would be executed. Polycarp's response in the trial before the proconsul was this. 86 years have I served Christ. Now, we don't know exactly at what age he was born again, but most likely as a young person, and he's now been walking with the Lord for 86 years. 86 years have I served Christ, and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Thereupon, the proconsul sentenced him to die at the stake. What that meant in those days, it was not a crucifixion. He was tied to a stake. They gathered wood. They placed it at his feet. They lit it on fire, and he was burned alive. So the church in Smyrna later did experience, at least their leadership later did experience the ultimate expression of persecution. But at this moment in history, the persecution was just a rising tide. It hadn't reached that level yet. And the the experience they were currently dealing with was an economic persecution. This is why the Lord says to them in verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Smyrna was one of the richest of the seven cities, meaning the uh, the average living level of the inhabitants of the city of Smyrna was higher on average than any of the other six cities in this portion of the world, this area of the world. So why was the church impoverished? Why was the church so uh, suppressed or oppressed technically, um, economically? It's because there was this large uh, economic guild that was connected to the the buying and selling of myrrh primarily and the myrrh trade. And um, it was a guild that used its economic power, their combined economic wealth to to kind of um, set the tone for what happened in the city. And so when the gospel was first planted there, at the very beginning, it was, it, it was allowed to continue. But as the church began to grow and as the church began to influence the culture and the society of the city of Smyrna around it, uh, just like we saw in uh, the letter to the Ephesians, and we'll see in some of the later letters to the other seven churches as well, the, uh, the people that were connected to the, the primary temples of worship in the city uh, saw the, the new Christian church that was established in their midst as a threat to the integrity of their society and the religion that was the, the, really the center of their society. And so there were uh, economic boycotts that were leveled against the Christians in the city of Smyrna. We will not do business with them any longer. Now, 
it was, as I said, somewhat of a large city, but it wasn't like a, a city like Los Angeles, where if some group said to us, we're not going to do business with Tree of Life and any of the members of Tree of Life any longer, we could still, probably through the internet at least, we could still find someone in the world that would be willing to do business with us. But in this circumstance, it was very limited and it was very connected to the city itself. And so the church was economically suffering as a result of this boycott that this guild had enacted against them. Now, what does the Lord say to them at this point? I know your tribulation and your poverty, but don't worry, I'm going to pour out so much money on you, you will never have another economic problem for the rest of your life. Does he say, uh, give, your, give your seed money, your tithe, and if you'll do that, then I'll return to you a hundred times what you've lost in this, uh, this economic boycott that you're experiencing. You know, I want my people always, as some preachers in our generation say, always to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, no matter what. So don't worry, as long as you trust me and as you have faith, you're going to be wealthy. Yes, right now you're in poverty, but you will soon be wealthy if you just follow the principles of my word. Does he say any of those things to them? What he says is, I know your tribulation and your poverty, and then the translators have added the parentheses just for emphasis, but you are rich. Now, does he mean, yes, I know that you're in poverty, but you actually have hidden money that you don't know about physically, naturally, practically? No, what he's talking about is he's comparing now natural wealth to spiritual wealth. He's saying you are naturally impoverished because of this tribulation circumstance that you're in but you're actually spiritually wealthy and I'm encouraging your heart not by promising you natural wealth to replace the wealth you've lost. I'm encouraging you by redirecting your focus. He's essentially saying, take your focus off of your money and put your focus on your real treasure. Now we know the Lord Jesus did this in his own teaching ministry. What will a man give? in exchange for his soul. Even if he were to gain the whole world but lose his soul, has he really come out ahead? Has he really gained anything? The idea being that there is such a thing as spiritual wealth. And that is what, what is called in other places in God's word, treasures or a treasure reserved in heaven for us. Not so much natural gold and silver, but things of eternal value that the Lord has reserved for us because of our faithful walk with him in this world. But the reality is they lost money. They lost resources. They were struggling. We don't know exactly the details. You know, if they were renting where they lived, maybe they were struggling just to make ends meet, to make rent each month. If they needed to put food on the table for their families. Maybe they were putting less food on the table on a daily basis than they would ordinarily have put before the economic boycott hit their church. But the reality is it had hit and they could have at any moment alleviated the trouble of the economic loss that they were experiencing. How could they have alleviated the trouble? 
All they had to do was turn their back on their public allegiance to Christ and pledge allegiance to what the guild was requiring them to pledge allegiance to. Just like the choice that Polycarp was later given. Is Caesar Lord or is Jesus Lord? What what do you say? And all they had to do was change their tune and they could have instantly, overnight, been in a much more comfortable economic circumstance. So he says to them, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And then he is identifying here the source of this economic boycott and, and how this trouble came upon them. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, I had mentioned that the city of Smyrna in the introduction had the largest Jewish population of any of these seven cities and a particularly wealthy Jewish population. And they were not entirely in charge of the the Myrrh guild, but they were primarily the, the prime movers in that guild. And the reason why they had instituted this economic boycott is that the Jewish population was fine with emperor worship. They were fine with Zeus worship. They were fine with the, the mother goddess Sibeli worship. Why? Because they just viewed that's, that's paganism. We're living in a pagan world. We're living in a pagan city. We're living in a pagan society. And, you know, we can't really change that. We'll continue to do business with those people. But the reason for their reaction in a strong and persecuting way to the Christian community is the Christian community claimed to worship the same God that the Jewish community claimed to worship. And so they saw this as a more immediate threat. So what's interesting how the Lord describes that surrounding community in this guild, he says, those that say they are Jews and are not. Is he saying there's a group of people within the city that, that claim to be naturally, physically descended from Abraham, but they actually didn't really descend from Abraham? That's not what he's saying. These are people that actually did descend from Abraham, and biologically they were Jewish. But Jesus is now saying to them, they think they're Jewish, but they're not really Jewish, because being Jewish, according to the Lord himself, is not an issue of biology primarily. What does he mean? It's an issue of covenant relationship. What distinguished the Jewish people in Old Covenant history, Old Testament history, was not their biology, it was their covenant relationship to God. This is really going to the heart of what Paul was emphasizing. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read this short portion from Romans chapter 2. Paul writes in verse 28, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. The bottom line is, God alone, the Lord alone, can identify who is in a covenant relationship with him. And when the Lord says here to the Smyrnans, I know the slander of those that say they are Jews. They're slandering the the Christians. The, The slander of those who say they are Jews, but they're not. He's saying, 
they're outward Jews, but they're not inward Jews. They don't have a real covenant relationship with me. And their synagogue is not a synagogue dedicated to the glory and the honor of the one true God. Their synagogue, without them even realizing it, is actually glorifying Satan. It's under the influence of satanic work. It's persecuting, like Paul himself, Saul of Tarsus, before he was born again, was the most active persecutor of the church and in doing so was actually doing the work of Satan rather than the work of God. Now, what does the Lord have to say to them now that he's identified? I know exactly what you're dealing with. I know where you live. I know the circumstances that you're under. I know who's bringing this, this pressure of persecution upon you. I know the, where that's left you. Now, what does the Lord have to say to them in the midst of their circumstance? Verse 10. These three words, do not fear. There are a lot of common phrases in scripture, meaning phrases that are repeated over and over again in different books of the Bible, different chapters, different passages. This three-word phrase, do not fear, is one of the most commonly repeated phrases from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. The Lord repeats this dozens of, of times as he speaks to his people. Do not fear. Why would the Lord need to say the words do not fear to his followers? Because he knows there are some circumstances that we pass through in this life, persecution being right at the top of that list, that when you're experiencing it, you're going to have a natural reaction to that pressure that you are now under. A pressure outside of your control, a pressure you can't flip a switch and change. The natural reaction is you're going to start freaking out. I I just want you to imagine if someone were to walk in this door and say, that's it, this church is under economic ban, and suddenly all of our bank accounts were drained, and all of our resources were at issue, and we weren't allowed to, to buy or sell in this society, would you maybe be tempted to just freak out a little bit maybe a little bit fearful about what's going to happen to me what's going to happen to my loved ones what's going to happen to us the very first words out of the lord's mouth do not fear but what follows that is important too he doesn't say do not fear because i am totally in control and i will never let anyone do anything to ever make your life at all discomforted I mean, that would be nice if he were to say that, but he doesn't say that. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. He doesn't say, do not fear because I know they want you to suffer, but I'm not going to let it happen. You'll never have to suffer if you follow me. doesn't say that. Do not fear what you are about to suffer, which tells us that while those forces on earth, in this case, economics forces and political forces, the two are often tied together, while they have their own agenda, the Lord is not disconnected from what's going on. And as I said earlier, the Lord is the one actually monitoring the pressure cooker. Do not fear what you were about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. I wonder if they got to choose who it was. 
You know, if the Lord said through a prophetic word, okay, some of us are about to be thrown into prison, do we get to choose? You know, you might say, well, Tim's pretty strong in the Lord. Let's let him go first. <laughs> let us know how it goes. We'll be praying for you. <laughs> he didn't get to choose. So he doesn't even tell them specifically, okay, these 10 are, are going to be in prison and these others, are, they're going to escape. But some of them are about to be thrown into prison. There is somewhat of an encouraging element because... Um, apparently it's for a, a relatively short time period and the Lord alerts them to this before it happens he says the devil's about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation uh, commentators discuss and debate whether it's meant to, the 10 days is meant to be taken literally or whether it's meant to be taken as just a signification of a relatively short imprisonment I don't know I'm fine with either conclusion uh, but the idea being that the Lord knows even before it happens exactly how long their imprisonment is going to take. But he does add this line so that they understand there is a higher level spiritual purpose in the experience. What's the higher level spiritual purpose? That you may be tested. That word is always used as something that the Lord brings into the lives of his people for his higher level purposes in their spiritual growth and development. It means to be put under a testing circumstance in order to reveal what's already inside of that person, but the person before the testing doesn't know it's inside of them. And the test squeezes it out of them. Have you ever heard the story in relatively modern, maybe a little over 100 years ago, relatively modern Chinese history of rice Christians? You've heard this reference before? There was a, a Christian community in China, and then the communist revolution took place, and the church was suddenly a target of persecution. And um, the believers that the so-called believers that had been coming to the missionary compounds on a daily basis suddenly stopped showing up. And the reason why was that the missionaries had been kicked out of the country. They had been allowed to leave, the Western missionaries. But when they left, what left with them was they were on a daily basis serving rice to whoever showed up for their worship services because many people in those days in China were impoverished, so the missionaries were providing a meal for the people that came to church. And so it was still possible for the, the believers to go to church, but there was no rice connected to their worship time any longer. And so the, the number of people going to church suddenly and dramatically uh, diminished because there was no meal waiting why should I go? I won't get any rice. And so they became known by the true believers as rice Christians. You know, they're only here for the rice. And they're gone now. But we're going to remain. The pressure of the testing circumstance squeezed out of both types of believers who was truly there for the Lord and who was only there for the rice. So he says... The devil is going to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. 
And then these fateful words of the Lord. They're words of encouragement. They're words of exhortation. But just think about the context of what he actually says. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The crown of life is a, it's a promise of, of reward in heaven on top of just the blessing of life forevermore in the presence of the Lord. It's an awesome promise that the Lord attaches to their faithfulness. But what, it's an if-then statement. If you will be faithful, then on the final day, you will receive the crown of life. If you're not faithful, you won't receive the crown. And he says, be faithful unto death. Let me rephrase that. Let me retranslate that. Be faithful even if it kills you. Be faithful even if, I mean, you're only experiencing economic persecution right now. But what if the fire under the pressure cooker gets turned up one more notch beyond economic persecution? What if it becomes an actual threat on your physical well-being and maybe even someone is wanting to kill you because you simply hold to your allegiance to Christ? Will you stay faithful under the most intense pressure? And of course, the natural inclination as we sit here now in relative comfort is kind of react like Peter. How did Peter react when Jesus said, hey, before the, before the cock crows, uh, this is what's going to happen later tonight. And Peter says, never, I will never do that. I wouldn't even dream of doing that. And then, of course, he gets into the circumstance and he does the very exact thing that the Lord had told him would happen because, of course, the Lord knew Peter's heart. So, you and I are not under even economic persecution at this present moment. As far as I know, I don't think anybody here in the church is even under that level of persecution. None of us are at all close to having our lives threatened simply for our allegiance to Christ. But I don't know if you've noticed, I've noticed things in our society are changing and they're not necessarily changing for the better. Um, the, The society's attitude and perspective toward Christianity is certainly not a favorable one presently, and it seems to be getting less and less favorable uh, by the minute. And all that means is there is the real possibility somewhere down the road of eventually facing pressure from the surrounding society to toe the line with what society says is right and true or remain faithful and, and, and hold your allegiance to the truth of the gospel and the revealed word of God, no matter what cost that may bring your way. Now, when he says be faithful, we should be familiar with the wording here. It's a present imperative verb. We've been studying these in our home church studies for three years now. Present imperative. What does it mean? Be faithful. Present tense means be always faithful every day for the rest of your life. There's never a day when you wake up, whether you're under pressure or not, where you are not called by the Lord to remain faithful to him. And then it's also carrying this this element of a command from the Lord. It's not a suggestion. It's not a recommendation. It's not his counsel. He's not saying, you know, you might be a little bit better off if you remain faithful than if you don't. He commands you as your sovereign and your Lord, be faithful unto death even if that is required of you. 
and he promises to give you the crown of life. Now, at this point in verse 11, he gives the same word that he gives to all of the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What does that mean for us? Does that mean that every church, is Jesus saying every church will experience the same persecution Smyrna's have, are about to experience? It's, it's destined for every church. No. Like I said, we, we've never experienced this persecution. We may never experience this persecution. But that's not for us to determine. We don't choose where we exist as a church. The Lord has planted us here in Northridge, California at this moment in history. But things can change in Northridge. The question is, are you hearing what the Spirit is saying to the churches? Number one, is it preparing your heart in case you're ever put in a similar circumstance? And number two, is it awakening your heart to the pressure that true believers are experiencing elsewhere in the world? You know, I'm just about to head back to Kenya and I'm going to be teaching the pastors, Lord willing, again in Lodwar and then in Kakama. I just want to remind you, in Kakama, of course, it's well, the reason we're teaching there is it's connected to that world's largest refugee camp. Most of the refugees there in Kakama have come from an intense persecution that the church in southern Sudan faced. How intense was it? The Muslim military in the north swept in to the southern area, which was primarily Christian, and wiped out entire villages of people. Men, women, and children just mowed down by tanks and machine guns. And those that survived, those that escaped, those that saw it coming, fled for their lives, and they fled south to Kenya, and some to Uganda, and a few to other locations. But they were stopped at the border, and now they live their lives in these refugee camps. I, we're, we're, by the grace of God, we are being given the privilege of ministering to some who have faced what Smyrna faced and even worse than what Smyrna faced. And we have the opportunity to be a blessing to them. I think it's one of the greatest privileges the Lord has ever given this church, probably the greatest, and one of the greatest he, I can imagine that he could ever give to us to, to be a, a beneficial, encouraging, teaching, strengthening influence to true believers that have survived such an intense persecution. So, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, and then he gives this final promise. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Um, I mentioned from the word of, of the Lord to the Ephesians about conquering, that conquering in this context doesn't mean I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take my Bible like the sword of the Spirit, and I'm going to go out, and I'm going to conquer the society around me, and they'll stop persecuting because I'll be in charge. That's not what conquering means in this context. Conquering here means remaining faithful no matter what. Like Polycarp. He conquered as he was being burned alive because he did not waver in his allegiance to the Lord. And what does he mean by will not be hurt by the second death? This is a really important principle. 
I'm going to, I don't have time to read them. I'm going to give you three passages. You can look them up in your own time. They're all from later in the book of Revelation. Revelation 20, verse 6, 20, verse 14, and 21, verse 8. These all three are references to the second death. What's he saying here? To the one who conquers, you may be persecuted even to the point of experiencing the first death. First death is natural death in this world. But the Lord promises you will not be hurt by the second death. He's saying, I will not allow you to experience the second death. The second death is what we call eternal death. And it doesn't mean eternal cessation of existence. It means what we call the experience of the lake of fire. To be tormented forever. The one who conquers will never, he's being assured by the Lord, you may, you may lose your, your, your resources, you may lose your money, you may lose your health, you may lose your life, but if you remain faithful and allegiant to me, I will ensure that you will have only an awesome and amazing and, and unbelievably glorious experience with me forever and ever, never touched by the pains of the second death. Let's pray. Father, uh, though our circumstances are not anywhere close to the circumstances of the Smyrna church. I know that you are speaking through this letter to us. I pray that we would hear your message and more than anything else, what is highlighted to our hearts is how greatly you value faithfulness and loyalty to your name, to your gospel, and to your revealed word and to the covenant relationship that we enjoy with you. May we be faithful to our covenant vows. May we be faithful to you, no matter what we may face in the future. And thank you so much for giving us an opportunity, Lord, to be a blessing to true believers uh, like the ones in Kakama who have experienced the uh, either personally or by, by close connection to relatives the ultimate cost that can be paid by a true follower of yours. May their hearts be encouraged in this upcoming uh, opportunity to, uh, to be a blessing to those that shepherd them in their churches in that refugee camp. Thank you, Lord. In the name of Lord Jesus, amen. God bless all.